invite you again to open your Bibles to Acts, but this time to Acts chapter 4. And I just want to, I want to consider this morning, at the very outset, the question of what kind of church do we really want to have? What kind of church do we really want to have? We see in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, really both sides of that coin. Uh, We have the opportunity here to see two examples, uh, and I debated a little bit which of these I would read for our scripture reading this morning, because as we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, that's not a happy story. In fact, that is a passage of Scripture that for many people is extremely troubling because we have what appears to be not grace, not the, the graciousness of God, which so, uh, so many times is the focus uh, of the New Testament, but we see the judgment of God. And for many people, they look at that passage and they struggle with it. How could this passage be consistent with what we see in all the rest of the New Testament and and what we, we read and we learn about Jesus Christ? Well, I think we have to understand Acts chapter 5 in the greater context of the story of the early church. We've already been looking at this, but I want to start with you in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 and read a few verses here that will give us a little bit more of a background of what we're talking about this morning. Verse 32 of Acts chapter 4, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I'd like to begin with just a word of prayer this morning. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we see in it a wonderful, beautiful picture A picture of your followers loving each other, caring for each other, sacrificing for each other, being willing to give up their own wealth and their own possessions so that others who had needs uh, could have those needs met. And Lord, as we look at the church in Acts, Lord, we realize here that in just a few verses we will see that all was not well, that there was sin in the camp. And Lord, as we come before you this morning, I pray that our hearts would be open before you, that you would search us. Lord, if there is sin in our hearts this morning, that you would 
convict us of that sin, that you would expose it to us, that we would respond in repentance, that our church could be what it ought to be and have the power and have the, the blessing on it that we so desire. In Jesus' name, amen. If there was one thing that consistently characterized the early church in Jerusalem, it might be this description that we have here in Acts 4. We read this in verse 32. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And we've seen this expression used already uh, at least a couple of other times in, in this book. The way that Luke describes the church in these verses is almost identical to what he recorded in Acts 2 after the day of Pentecost. You remember the day of Pentecost? When 3,000 souls were saved and baptized and added to the church in one day, and there was tremendous uh, growth and blessing as the people enjoyed and shared in the fellowship of the body of Christ. Luke described it. He described them in that way. He said they were of one mind. They were sharing their goods to meet one another's needs. They were preaching the gospel powerfully. <coughs> Excuse me. Their love for each other and their unswerving commitment to service was exemplified by their sacrificial giving to meet the needs of the poor in the church. <coughs> When anyone in the church had a financial need, the wealthier members sold some of their property and gave the money to the apostles for distribution. <coughs> Not only is that what we saw in Acts chapter 2, but we see it again here in Acts chapter 4. This is the, the, uh, the, the record that Luke gives us. It's, it's really in very typical fashion for Luke here. That in the end of chapter 4 in Acts, he introduces to us a character who will eventually become a very prominent player in the church. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, you see some interesting characters. And most people would, would suggest that there are really two main characters in the book of Acts as far as people are concerned, human beings, not counting obviously the Holy Spirit whose work is evident all through the book of Acts. But in the first ten chapters of the book of Acts, we have very prominently Peter, active in the church. And then the second part, beginning in chapter 11 to the end of the book, we have the Apostle Paul, very active, very prominent. But there's one person who's kind of behind the scenes, kind of, although Luke makes sure to bring him to the surface, makes sure to show us, reveal to us a little bit about him and see his work, and he ministers in the church all through the book of Acts, and that's Barnabas. Barnabas here is introduced to us by Luke. And he just gives us a brief glimpse, just a couple of verses. And then Barnabas' role in the church is going to expand and grow. And like I said, ultimately, Barnabas uh, becomes one of the key men in the church. Thank you. appreciate that. Barnabas becomes a very key player here. We're told here by Luke that this man's real name was Joseph or Joseph. He was also known as Barnabas. Luke tells us that he demonstrated his commitment to the fellowship of the church 
in one very simple way, he sold his land. And he gave all of the money to the church. Now, apparently here, he wasn't the only one who did that. Luke, in describing this passage, seems to indicate that this was something that was being done by, by many people. Okay. But for whatever reason, maybe it's simply because of the role that Barnabas would play, Luke introduces him here, and Luke illustrates <clears throat> with this less than detailed story the, the true character of this man. We don't have a lot of detail here, but it's obvious that this account of Barnabas and his giving, the end of chapter 4, is intended to be uh, contrasted with, (coughs) and it really provides a very stark contrast with the actions of Ananias and Sapphira in the very next chapter. When we see what Barnabas did here, we realize that Barnabas gave a very sincere and generous and sacrificial offering. The church recognized that. They realized not only that Barnabas gave a sincere and sacrificial offering, but they realized that that was a reflection of his true character. The fact that Barnabas gave this, he sold this land, that he gave uh, the money to the church was very consistent with Barnabas and his character. It's safe to say uh, that Barnabas did not seek recognition. He did not seek a reputation by doing this. But he earned a reputation. He earned recognition because his actions were consistent with his character. He was a faithful man. A man who loved his fellow believers more than he loved material possessions. It's interesting. Luke kind of gives us some commentary, doesn't he? He tells us that this man's name was Joseph, but that he had been nicknamed Barnabas. And and Luke tells us that the name Barnabas means the son of encouragement, the son of consolation. What a name. What a man who was characterized, if you wanted to sum up Barnabas in one way, one word, you could just call him encourager. <laughs> you ever met somebody like that? You ever met somebody who, when you talked with them, when you ran into them, when you spent time with them, they just encouraged you? I mean, it just, just whatever, in, in whatever, they, whatever they did, they were encouraging. They, they sought out opportunities to build you up. That's what Barnabas is. And we'll see that as we look through the book of Acts. You know, when Paul got saved and nobody would have anything to do with him, Barnabas was the one who came alongside Paul and introduced Paul to all of the apostles. Barnabas was the one who who smoothed the way for Paul to be welcomed into the church. You know, Paul, the the hate-filled terrorist who destroyed the church as much as he could, tried to terrorize and, and tear apart the church. And it was Barnabas who said, no, this man, this man knows Jesus Christ. We need to embrace him. So Barnabas was used as an encourager. When when Paul and when Paul had gone on his first missionary journey and John Mark, you know, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, when he when Paul wrote him off as a failure because John Mark had left, because he had given up when things got difficult, and Paul said, I'm never gonna take him with me again 
I, I've had it. I don't trust him. And I'm not going to take him on another journey. He's not dependable. Barnabas said, no, no I'll, I'll take him. In fact, it got to the point where Barnabas and Paul ended up having to split up. Because Barnabas was determined to be an encouragement. This is the kind of guy that Barnabas was. He was the son of encouragement, Luke tells us. That's what his name meant. Now, if we stop at the end of chapter 4, we see the church is loving each other. They're fellowshipping together. They are giving uh, their possessions so that nobody has any needs. By, By the way, just as a comment on that, this is... this. This community of faith, this church, is doing what God had told Israel they were supposed to do back in the Old Testament. See, if you go back and read the Old Testament, we realize that God had built into the Old Testament law principles which if the Israelites had followed, nobody in Israel would have had to been poor. Nobody in Israel would have had to suffer hunger or need. Now, not everybody would have been rich and wealthy. But God had built into their society a means by which the poor could have food, could have shelter, could be taken care of. And Israel generally didn't do it. In fact, you read through the prophets. In many cases, what you will see is God, uh, God uh, uh, condemns Israel for their mistreatment of the poor. And here we have the, the church... In Acts, and what are they doing? They're taking care of the poor. They're willingly giving up their own wealth just so that anyone else in that fellowship, anyone else in that church who came into a time of need could be taken care of. We actually will see in Acts chapter 6 that primarily it was widows. Primarily in the church there in Jerusalem, they were providing for widows. And they were giving of their own wealth to do so. What a wonderful fellowship. The commentary we have here on it, there in verse 33, is that the apostles had great power in their witness. And grace was upon them. Because this fellowship was exactly what it should have been, they enjoyed that wonderful grace of God and the power in their witness that accompanied it. And if we ended right here, and we just stopped the book of Acts right here, We might think that, hey, everything in the church was good. They enjoyed unbroken fellowship, joy, peace, and demonstrations of true love for every believer. Yay! And that would be wonderful if it were true. But the truth is, the church in Jerusalem, just like our church here in Elkhorn today, was imperfect. The church in Jerusalem was imperfect. The fly in the ointment was this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, who deceptively tried to gain financially and by reputation from the sale of their land. They enacted a plot, we're told in chapter 5, to sell some property and give only the, a portion of the proceeds of the sale, while declaring that they had given all of it. Now, as we'll see here in Acts 5, there was no reason that, that, that Ananias and Sapphira had to give everything. You know, Barnabas had done that. Others had done that. They had sold land and given the proceeds. 
But there's no reason, Peter even tells Ananias, that when, he, when you still had it, it was your own to do with however you chose. Okay. They, they didn't have to give this up, but they chose to do that. And what they did, though, was we're told there in chapter 5 and verse 2 that after they sold the possession, that Ananias kept back part of the proceeds. Okay. And he brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And if we just read that, we'd say, okay, what's the big deal? They sold the land for $10,000 and they brought 5000 to give to them. Good, that's a wonderful gift. We should rejoice, right? If you and I were to do that today, if we were to sell some property and you were to come and give generously from the sale of your property, wonderful. What a, what a blessing that would be to the church. What a blessing that would be. What a testimony, right? The only problem appears to be the Ananias and Sapphira, when they came and gave that gift, claimed that they were giving everything. Claimed that they gave that they gave a hundred percent, that they kept nothing back for themselves. Is that's not what happened. Still, still, this is what many people I think today would call a victimless crime. Who was hurt by this? Really. Nobody was hurt by this. I mean, the church received money to support those in need. That was a good thing. The church needed money because they had people in the church who were in need. And so this was good. It was a good gift given to minister to people. It was done to help people. And Ananias and Sapphira received credit. You know, they, they, they were able to enhance their reputation. That wasn't a bad thing, was it? For, for, for them to give and to receive some recognition for that, that wasn't a bad thing. Recognition is not evil. It, it's not a bad thing for us to recognize someone's service or ministry. If it was, you'd stop, better stop giving me those $5 uh, Pizza Ranch gift cards. I don't deserve those. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> now listen, recognition is not a bad thing, Okay. So there's nothing wrong with Ananias and Sapphira receiving some recognition. Barnabas did. His name is included here as one who gave. He's singled out as one who gave sacrificially. So the recognition is not a problem. It's not a bad thing. And Is there anything wrong with profit? Is there anything wrong with making money? No. Contrary to what some people in today's society might have you think, <clears throat> there's nothing inherently unchristian or unchrist-like in making money by selling something. There's nothing wrong with that. So who was really who was hurt? Who was the victim? Why was this such a big deal? I mean, everybody benefits, right? Well, that may be how we would look at it. Or how some people might look at it. Apparently, that's not how God looked at it. Of course, as usually happens the truth about their little transaction came to light. How Peter knew about it, we don't know. I would suggest to you probably that the Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter in some sort of supernatural way. We don't have that indication in Scripture, so I wouldn't wouldn't die on that hill, but I'm telling you uh, that the Spirit was working here. The Holy Spirit was working in this situation, and I believe the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter exactly what had taken place. Peter knew because we see it here 
in Acts 5. We see, let's read these verses again. Verse 1, but, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And look what Peter said. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Somehow, when Ananias came and he brought this gift, and he laid it down at Peter's feet, and, and by the way, the, the fact that he laid it at his feet is a, is a symbol of his submission. His recognition of the authority that God has placed in the apostles in this church in Jerusalem. And so he's, he's humbling himself, right? And we would almost be tempted to believe that he really was humbling himself if it weren't for Peter's response. Because Peter says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Peter says that Satan has filled Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. I looked at these verses, verses 3 and 4 this week, and I, <clears throat> I, did, I, I did some study in them uh, on these verses in the Greek uh, text. And I'm by no means a Greek scholar. And I wouldn't put my translation up here and have you read it because it, it's probably scary. But I did work on it this week because I wanted to look at this verse. I wanted to see what was... Because here's what I thought. Okay, As I look at this verse, right? notice what it says. It says, why has Satan filled your heart? And I thought, all right... <clears throat> He says to Ananias, Satan filled your heart. We go back to ch uh, chapter 4 and verse 31, and we're told that, that the believers in the church were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you go back to Acts chapter 2, and we, real, and we read there that the Holy Spirit filled them again, back, or filled them at the day of Pentecost. And so I thought, okay, you know, I want to find out. What, what is this really talking about? Can this possibly be the same thing? Well, the word used here, is the exact same word that's used to describe the filling with the Holy Spirit that was received by the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, and Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Satan says to Ananias, Hey, you know, the Holy Spirit has filled us, has controlled us, has empowered us to preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit has empowered us to minister, to build this church. But Ananias... It's not the Holy Spirit that filled you. It's not the Holy Spirit who is empowering you. It's Satan. See, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they preached the gospel boldly. They loved each other sacrificially. But the opposite is true here. Ananias and Sapphira were filled with deceitfulness rather than with the Spirit. And their actions demonstrate that they were working in opposition to God in the church. This is important, though. I want you to understand this this morning. We cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and then practice deceit. We can't. We can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and then practice deceit. Those two things are incompatible. If we are practicing deceit, as they were, <clears throat> it's evidence of having our hearts filled by Satan. In other words, having our hearts filled with sin and wickedness. And our actions will be opposed to the work of God. That's why I asked this morning, what kind of church do you want to have? 
Because what we see here is we see a very stark contrast between the church that was filled with the Holy Spirit and between this couple that was filled with deceitfulness by Satan. Now, I want to look at a couple things this morning, but I want to ask one question here. First of all, what exactly was the nature of their sin? What was this sin really? I want to try and boil this down. I want to try and get to the essence of what it was they were doing because you and I don't find ourselves in this situation very often. Having sold a chunk of land, brought money, and laid it down at the pastor's feet and said, I sold the land for X number of dollars and I'm giving you the money. If you want to do that, feel free. But, but this, is not a, this is not a common situation for us today, is it? Okay. So I want to find out what is the essence here? What really was taking place? <clears throat> what was the nature of the sin? Was it withholding money from the church? And the answer is no. Peter makes that very clear in verse 4. Look at what he says in verses 4 through 6. Well, it remained here. Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great great fear came upon all those who had heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. When the money was in their possession, Ananias and Sapphira could do with it as they pleased. Once they claimed to be giving all of it to the Lord, though, then they were obligated to do so. See, they they weren't under any obligation to give this money to the church. It was their money. They had sold the land. It was their right to do with it as they pleased. They didn't owe this to God. They didn't owe this to the church. Not in a sense of being obligated to give it in its entirety. The real issue wasn't the money. It was that they pretended to be more devoted Christians than they really were. Think about that for a minute. This is the sin for which they died. They pretended to be more devoted Christians than they really were. I could almost just stop here. Let you think about that for a little bit. Let it convict you and just let it work. Because that's kind of where I was at this week. Think about that. They pretended to be more devoted Christians than they really were. That was all. But it was a tremendously evil thing in the sight of God. You see, God is just as concerned with the motive of our hearts as He is with our actions and words. And so to God, this was a grievous offense. This couple was portraying an image of godliness and an image of total commitment to God's people when in reality they were interested only in themselves. Their good deed, and I use that word very very loosely, because it was in no sense good if it was motivated by impure impure motive. But their good deed was clouded by a self-serving motive. Now you might ask, well, what about Sapphira? I mean, you know, we've read Ananias. Yeah, he stood there and he told Peter this lie and he died. Well, 
Let's see if Ananias or if Sapphira acted with the same duplicity. Look at verse seven. Now it was about three hours later when the wife came in, when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, "Tell me whether you sold the land for so much." And she said, "Yes, for so much." Then Peter said to her, "How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look." The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. You notice that Peter confronted them each individually and separately? I think, though, again, the... the, the the conversation here is pretty sparse. We're not given all of the details, and I would suspect that there probably is more to this story as far as the conversation than we have recorded for us here. I don't think Luke gave us all of the details. I think he simply gave us enough to understand what was really taking place. Because I, I, I think that we can safely assume that Ananias was given the opportunity to repent. That even after he had come and he said, I, I sold it for this much, and here's the money that he could have still confessed and said, you're right, I, 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 I lied. And he could have still confessed his sin and sought forgiveness. We don't have that recorded with Ananias, but we definitely do with Sapphira. She walked in and Peter put her on the spot. <clears throat> Did you sell it for this much? She had a chance to come clean. Perhaps if she had told the truth, she would not have suffered the same judgment that her husband faced. Yet, she lied to Peter. And in lying to Peter, she was lying to the Holy Spirit. And in lying to the Holy Spirit, she was lying to God. <coughs> it's interesting how people can get a certain reputation over time. Many people throughout the years have suggested that Ananias and Sapphira were inherently wicked people who only played the part of Christians in order to receive personal gain. In fact, um, uh, one of the presidents of the United States, in fact, used to used to accuse people of being Ananias if they were dishonest. Okay. And their name became, in in some ways, a, a a symbol of anyone who was deceitful and lying. Okay. But but I want you to understand here are the facts of the story because we can look at Ananias and Sapphira and we can write them off as being this. These inherently corrupt, they, they really never ever cared about the truth. These, they weren't really a part of the church. They were just pretending. But that is not the indication that we receive in Acts 5. They were a part of the church. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, the story suggests that Ananias succumbed to the influences of the powers of darkness at one particular point and in regard to one particular activity. That is, what to do with the money for the sale of the land. There is no reason to doubt that he had been a member in good standing of the community prior to this occasion. I say this, I mention this, <clears throat> Because I think that we might have the tendency to think that somehow this story should stand as a warning to others, <clears throat> but not to us. And somehow there are other people who <clears throat> they are just playing a game. They're not really <clears throat> committed Christians. 
They don't really love the Lord like we do. And so this is a story for them. But I think we would be mistaken. I would suggest to you that if a husband and wife who are apparently committed followers of Christ can be caught up in a lie like this, then we ought to, be, we ought to beware ourselves. This could also be us. This morning, I'd like to to draw out, in the few minutes we have remaining, two timeless truths about the nature of their sin and what the remedy is for it in our church. So first of all, what was the essential nature of their sin? We've already looked at this a little bit. In verses 3 and 4 of Acts 5, Peter explains that Ananias and Sapphira have lied to God. That's what he says there in verse 3. He says that Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. By the way, just a a quick side note here on these verses. This is a very important passage. Because in this passage, the Holy Spirit is identified as God. That's important because there are churches, there are cults out there who reject that the Holy Spirit is God. Jehovah's Witness is one. The Holy Spirit is God. And if we lie to the Holy Spirit, we are lying to God. Because they are one and the same. That's revealed here. We need to understand that. But understand that they lied. That was what their sin was. Peter says, you've lied to God. Their deception was intended to cast themselves in a good light. The issue wasn't that they kept the money for themselves. It wasn't their greed, though they were greedy. But their greed was not the issue here. It was that they made an idol out of the recognition they received for their generosity and Christian commitment. You see, the issue was not the idolatry with respect to money. Materialism is a danger, and and this passage ought to cause cause us to to re-evaluate our uh, attitude toward possessions. But, far more serious in this passage was their idolatry with respect to the way that they looked in the community of Christ. Their reputation in the church for them was an idol that they were willing to do anything, even lie, to protect and enhance. Instead of being motivated by love for God and His people, along with a desire to serve those in need, They were driven by selfishness and by their ego. In verse 9, when he's talking with Sapphira, Peter adds a little bit of an explanation to that. He asks Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? The idea here of testing the Spirit is seeing how far they could go in disobeying God before judgment. If you think about that for a second, that's a very, very dangerous and foolish thing to do. Decide that we're going to just see how far we can go. We're going to just see just how much we can get away with, how, how much we can lie about that God will overlook. That's what they were doing here. They were testing the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately for Ananias and Sapphira, the answer... to how far they could go was not very far. 
So the essential nature of their sin. They lied to God. They tested the Holy Spirit. An interesting study sometime. Study out throughout Scripture this idea of testing God. What you'll find is that an entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness because they tested God. And when Jesus was tempted of Satan, one of the responses that he had to Satan was, Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Of course, we might say, well, that's, you know, Ananias and Sapphira. That's not us. This is where we get to the second aspect of this. What's the solution in our church today? What's the solution in our church today? Well, the first thing is I think we need to recognize the sin for what it is. We need to recognize that lying to the Holy Spirit is a sin that Christians commit frequently today. Think about it. I just said that. Listen to it again. Lying to the Holy Spirit is a sin that Christians commit frequently today. When Christians act hypocritically by pretending a devotion that is not theirs, or, or they pretend the surrender of a life that they have not really made, they lie to the Holy Spirit. Several people have suggested if God acted today as he did in the early Jerusalem church, undertakers would have a whole lot more work than they do. The only reason that I can explain why God doesn't still take the lives of his followers when they act in this duplicitous and deceitful way is he is gracious. He's gracious to us. He's merciful. He's giving us opportunity to repent. Because when Ananias and Sapphira did this, they died. That's not the only time either in the New Testament that Christians died in God's judgment because they acted in a deceitful way? You can look at 1 Corinthians and you can see in 1 Corinthians 11 that there were Christians who had died. Now why did they die? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, we might say, well, they died because they misused the Lord's Supper. Well, that's true. But what was the essence of their sin? I would suggest to you it's the exact same as the essence of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. They came and they took the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper communicates publicly that, hey, I am in a right relationship with God and I am in a right relationship with my church family. And those believers in Corinth came and they did that. They made that declaration and they put on that front, hey, I am committed to Christ. I am committed to this church. But in reality, they weren't. And God struck them dead. And it happened in the church in Corinth, just like it happened here in Jerusalem. Does that mean God will strike us dead? I don't want to say no. I don't want to say no. God judges sin. And he's the same God today as he was then. And he hates sin just as much now as he did then. And he hates deception in his church and hypocrisy in his church just as much now as he did then. The only thing that I can say is, God, be merciful to me. Because I know 
that hypocrisy and deception, they're here, right here. And that tendency, that desire for everyone in the church to think how good and how committed I am is there. And the temptation to, to put on that kind of outward commitment, even if my, my heart is not right, even if I'm not truly surrendered to the Lord as, as, I'm, as I'm putting on display for the people of the church to see. That temptation is there. And the only solution is to repent. And to, to beg forgiveness and mercy. We don't see that kind of attitude on, on the part of Ananias and Sapphira. I, I, I honestly believe if they, had, if they had fallen down on their faces and cried out for mercy, that God would have shown them mercy. But what we see in them is an attitude of ongoing deceitfulness and a refusal to repent. And they were judged for it. What's the solution? The first thing is we've got to recognize what this sin is because it's here today just as much as it was then. Harry Ironside said, Ananias and Sapphira were not sinners above all others. Others have sinned as much and perhaps we are among them. And we need to go in the presence of God and cry, Purge me from, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. As David cried out in Psalm 51 verse 7. But that's only the first part of the solution. We have to recognize this sin for what it is. But the second thing is we need to practice genuine Christianity. Now that seems like a really huge and impossible answer. But this is what it is. This is what we're called to do. The temptation to put on a front, to act hypocritically is a constant danger. But true fellowship cannot exist when there is deception and secrecy. John Polhill in his commentary on this passage said this, The church can only thrive as the people of God if it lives within the total trust of all of its members. Where there is that unity of trust, that oneness of heart and mind, the church flourishes in the power of the Spirit. That's what we see in Acts 4. Oh, the church is flourishing. It's growing. There's power. Why? Because there's oneness and openness and honesty and fellowship, true fellowship. But he says, where there is duplicity and distrust, its witness fails. How is it that we can do this? We recognize the temptation, we recognize the sin of hypocrisy, that, that, that display of our commitment, our devotion to Christ when it's not really legitimate. We recognize that sin, we repent, we confess it, but how is it that we live our Christian life in a genuine way? Well, I think we can come right back to this passage. We can look at the example of Barnabas. Because Barnabas is a tremendous example for us to follow. Here in Acts 4, we have a, 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 an example of someone whose genuine love for the church and his willingness to give sacrificially to meet others' needs became his trademark. See, Barnabas became known for his desire to encourage and build up and help and support others. 
But there is no indication of Scripture that he ever traded on his, on his reputation. No, no evidence anywhere in Scripture that Barnabas ever sought out a name for himself. That he ever tried to use that for his own gain and his own benefit. His motivation was pure. And he was more concerned with others than he was with himself. That is the picture and acts of how true Christians act toward one another. Does the same kind of thing happen in our church today? The same kind of temptation to sin that Ananias and Sapphira have? Well, let me just read for you one really, really quick story to kind of illustrate this to you. Alice Grayson, give her story. She was, she was, she was called or to bake a cake for the Baptist Church Ladies Group in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But she forgot to do it until the last minute. She remembered it the morning of the bake sale, and after rummaging through her cabinet, she found an angel food cake mix and quickly made it while drying her hair, dressing, and helping her son pack for scout camp. When she took the cake from the oven, the center had dropped flat, and the cake was horribly disfigured. I know how to do this, by the way. Um, <laughs> and she... She exclaimed, oh no, I don't have time to bake another cake. So, this is an important cake. I mean, Alice wanted to make a good impression. It was a new church to her, and she wanted to make a good impression, and she wanted to be seen well. And so she looked around the house for something she could use to build up the center of the cake, and she found it in the bathroom, a roll of toilet paper. So she plunked it in, she covered it with icing. Not only... You're getting ahead of me now. Not only did the, did the cake look beautiful, it, it, it looked perfect. I mean, it, it, this was a beautiful cake. Before she left the house to drop the cake by the church and head for work, she woke up her daughter and gave her some money and specific instructions to be at the church, uh, at, the, at the bake sale, the moment it opened at 9.30, and buy the cake and bring it home. Unfortunately, when her daughter arrived at the bake sale, she found that the attractive, perfect cake had already been sold. And so, she grabbed her phone, she called her mom, and she told her. Alice was horrified. She was beside herself. Everyone would know. What would they think? She would be ostracized, talked about, ridiculed. All night, she lay awake in bed thinking about people pointing fingers at her and talking about her behind her back. The next day, she promised herself she would try not to think about the cake and she would attend the fancy luncheon and bridal shower at the home of a fellow church member and try to have a good time. She, did, she didn't really want to attend because the hostess was a snob who more than once had looked down at her, no, or her nose at the fact that Alice was a single parent and not from one of the founding members of Tuscaloosa. But she'd already RSVP'd and she couldn't think of a good excuse to stay home. The meal was elegant. The company was definitely upper crust Old South, and to Alice's horror, the cake in question was presented for dessert. <laughs> Alice felt the blood drain from her body when she saw the cake. She started out of her chair to tell the hostess all about it. But before she could get to her feet, the mayor's wife said, What a beautiful cake! Alice, still stunned, sat back in her chair when she heard the hostess, who was a prominent church member, say, Thank you. I baked it myself. All I know is this. When we do good works in order to be noticed, 
We're simply revealing that our own reputation is more valuable to us than our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as it's inconceivable that your hands could say to your feet, we don't need you. It ought to be inconceivable that a member of this local church could decide that it is more, that it is more important than any other member of the same body. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They paid dearly for it. But I would suggest to you this morning that that's a danger, it's a temptation that we all face. And I would encourage you to evaluate yourself in the light of the Word of God, your own heart, your own motive, and to confess if you find this sin there. What kind of church do you want? Do you want a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit? Where our witness is powerful? Where our love is truly demonstrated? Where there is real, genuine fellowship? If so, then deceitfulness, dishonesty, lying, it can't be present. We have to confess it and forsake it. Let's pray.